0: Again, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the is he. Sing a new song to Him who sits on Heaven's mercy seat. Clothed in rainbows of living color, flashes of lightning, rolls of thunder, blessing and honor, strength and glory and power be to you the only wise king. Filled with wonder. Filled with wonder, awestruck wonder, at the mention of your name. Jesus, your name is power, breath and living water, such a marvelous mystery holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and is and is to come with all creation i sing praise to the king of kings You are my everything and I will adore you. Come, behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Come behold the wondrous mystery, he, the perfect son of man. In his living, in his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in him we stand. Come, behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption, see the Father's plan unfold. Bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could ever restrain him praise the lord he is alive what a foretaste of deliverance how unwavering our hope christ in power resurrected as will we be when he comes what a foretaste what a foretaste of deliverance How unwavering our hope, Christ in power resurrected, as will we be when he comes. in awe and wonder, the King of glory, the King above all kings. This is amazing grace, this is unfailing love, that you would take my place, that you would bear my cross, You laid down your life That I would be set free Oh, Jesus, I sing for All that you've done for me Who brings our chaos Back into order Who makes the orphan a son and daughter, the king of glory, the king of glory. Who rules the nations with truth and justice, shines like the sun in all of its brilliance. The king of glory, the king above all kings. This is amazing grace. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy, worthy, worthy. Oh, this is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. Speak O oh Lord Speak O oh Lord as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word take your truth planted deep in us shape and fashion us in your likeness that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O oh Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Cause our faith to rise. Cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. Words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. Oh Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. Truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. And by a grace we'll stand on your promises. And by a faith we'll walk as you walk with us. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory.
1: Man, would you pray with me? Father, this morning we gather as your people in the name of Jesus. We come to you, to this Mount Zion, only by his blood. We see you as the holy, holy, holy God, worthy of reverence and awe and wonder. We know that we dare not approach because we are shot through with sin. And if we had any doubts, we could... We need only look back to our last week and realize there are ways that we have gone our own way. Our hearts have chased after lesser gods and put other things ahead of you. We have put things in our life on the throne that rightly only belongs to the king of kings. So God, we acknowledge that. We confess that together. And yet we don't confess it full of fear and terror We confess it full of gratitude and relief and joy because in spite of our sins, we can draw near to you with confidence because we have a mediator. We have one who has stood between us and your righteous wrath against sin, who has absorbed every last drop of the cup of wrath in our place so that now all we know is grace. And so we come as your blood-bought people this morning excited to hear what our Lord will speak to us. Lord, help us to treasure your word, that we are not in a book club. We don't come just to discuss the latest thing we've read, but we come to the word of God. So help us to hear it for what it is, not as the word of man, but as the very word of God. I pray for your help to open it rightly, to handle it, to speak what is true to it in a way that is pleasing to you. And I pray for your help for all of us to hear what you say to us, to believe it, and to live accordingly. So we ask all this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews. We are in the home stretch with this great book, but we are still in Hebrews today. We are looking at chapter 13. Verses 1 to 6. And if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, you're more than welcome to use one in the pew in front of you. Hebrews chapter 13, just doing verses 1 to 6 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Let brotherly love continue. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, when I was in high school, I took a chemistry class was AP chemistry with Mr. Shum. Mr. Shum. Now, like most chemistry classes, the class was divided into two parts. There was the classroom portion where we dug into the textbook and we learned all these concepts, all these amazing truths about elements and reactions and what happens in chemistry. And then there was the second part of the class, which was lab, where you take the concepts that you've been learning and you see what it looks like in real life. The classroom was, was the safe part, really safe and individual, just about me and my learning. Lab, however, meant working with others, working in teams, and it meant Bunsen burners. Now, I'm only going to say two things about Bunsen burners. First is, why anyone thinks that it's a good idea to give high school kids access to a flame that is hooked up to a steady, nonstop stream of gas is a good idea is beyond me. Second, if your teacher leaves the room and you use rolled up paper towels to take a flame from one Bunsen burner to light another because you lost your matches, those paper towels burn a lot faster than you might think they do. And if you know Mr. Shum in this room, I will deny that I know anything about a smoke smell that he may or may not have smelled when he walked back into the room. That's all I'm going to say about that. The point is that lab is where you do the things you learned in class. You learn about them in class. You get the concepts, the principles, and then you go to the lab and you actually try to make it work. See what it looks like. And sometimes things don't go as smoothly as you thought they would. Like, oh, I got this down. And then you try to do it and you think, oh, that's, that's harder than it looks. There are challenges to figure out. But actually doing the experiments make you learn the material in ways that the classroom never could. This week we come to the last chapter in the letter to the Hebrews. For 12 chapters, the author's been teaching us some glorious realities about the gospel. He's shown us a multitude of ways that Jesus is better. He's better than angels, better than Moses, better than the priests. Better, he's a better sacrifice. He has better blood. He offers it in a better heavenly sanctuary. He's a mediator of a better covenant. And he's pleaded, the author has pleaded with us to keep our eyes fixed on that Jesus and keep running the race of faith all the way home. That's 12 chapters Now in chapter 13, he's going to end the letter by taking us to the lab. He's going to get really practical and say, okay, I'm not shifting gears in one sense. Like I'm not, this isn't a new letter. All that stuff I've been telling you, let's go to the lab and see what does it look like when you live this out. So last week we saw that if we are in Christ, and we saw it again this morning in our call to worship, if we're in Christ, we've already come to Zion. And all these amazing heavenly realities, the presence of God. We've come to Jesus, our mediator, to his blood that cleanses us, to the redeemed people of God, and to angels celebrating it all. We've come to that. But while we've come to these heavenly realities, we're still journeying by faith here on earth. That's where we live. So in chapter 13, the author is going to lay out for us, how do the people of Zion live here on earth how do people for whom all that we saw in chapter 12 is true actually live it out in their daily lives here and now how do we live as citizens of jesus's unshakable kingdom on earth but before we look at that we need to be very clear about the order here this may sound obvious but chapter 12 comes before chapter 13 Chapter 12, here's why I say that's important. Because the commands in chapter 13 are not a way for us to get to Zion. These are not steps that if you do the things we talk about today, you will be saved and you will get to be part of the people of God. These are commands for people who have already been saved. Who have already come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Who have already been cleansed by his blood. Who have come to Jesus by faith. Who have trusted that he took his place. When he's saying, you took my place, you die that I might have life and be set free. That's who this is for. Now this continues a pattern, right? In the Old Testament, when God gave Moses the law on Mount Sinai, do you remember how the Ten Commandments, what, what he gives them there, how it starts? Before the very first commandment, the very first thing God says is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of slavery. So before God gives the commands, he rescues his people from slavery. And what does he do? And he brings them to his mountain. Well, guess what? Guess what's going on in Hebrews? First, God rescues his people through Jesus. He brings us out of slavery to sin and death. And he brings us not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion. And as the redeemed people of God, he tells us how the people of Zion are to live here on earth. So these commands that we're looking at, I just want to be crystal clear, especially if you're joining us and you know, like, I don't know about Christianity yet. You just need to hear us say, this is not how to be a Christian. That if I do these things, I will be right with God. That's not it. These commands are only possible for people who've already been gripped by God's grace and empowered by his Holy Spirit. And as we'll see, there's one thing that dominates our lives as the people of Zion. The primary identifying characteristic of those who belong to King Jesus is love. It's love. Now, like a diamond, you hold up a diamond, you turn it, you're going to get lots of different views of this one beautiful thing. And like a diamond, this love has many faces. They all shine out. And here in our passage, what we're going to do is we're going to look at five of those faces of love. Five ways that it shines out. So here's your outline, if you're taking notes. How do the people of Zion live on earth? First, they love their siblings. Second, they love the stranger. Third, they love the suffering. Fourth, they love their spouse. And fifth, they don't love stuff. So let's step into the lab and see what a life changed by Jesus really looks like in practice. Okay, so look with me at verse one again. Really short, four words. Let brotherly love continue. So right away, I said this is about love. Here it is. Right away, love shows up. And this love, notice, is not just a general affection it's not just saying, like, oh, so-and-so is such a loving person. They just have a, a disposition of love towards anything, anyone, anywhere. It's a, this is a brotherly love. It's a family kind of love. It's the way you would love a sibling or a family member. It's not based on how lovable they are, right? Anybody testify to that in their families? It's not about how lovable they are or how much you think they deserve your love, That's not why you love your family. You don't evaluate them and say, they've always been good to me. I think they're kind. They're winsome. They got some good qualities. Yeah, I'm going to love my brother. No, you love him. Why? Because he's your brother. In fact, there may be times they drive you crazy. They might make choices that you don't agree with. And they may take different views on a lot of different things that get you all riled up. But why do you love them? Well, because they're your family. That's the kind of love we're talking about here. A love that is more tightly bound because of what binds it than it is threatened by the things that might divide it. And we shouldn't be at all surprised that love shows up here in the book of Hebrews. Because for the last couple of chapters, what have we been talking about? Faith. Faith. Draw near in full assurance of faith. My righteous one shall live by Faith. Chapter 11 is by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. We look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So why do I say we shouldn't be surprised that love shows up now? Because in the New Testament, where there is faith, it's always paired with love. Paul tells us in Galatians 5, 6 that what counts in the Christian life is faith working through love. That's how faith works, through love. In other words, the best I could come up with here, and I know this is not a perfect analogy, so so bear with me. It's kind of like the relationship between gasoline and the wheels on your car. I know there's an engine in between, so just bear with me. But gasoline works through powering the engine that turns your wheels. That's how you know you have gas, is when I push the accelerator my wheels spin. When I don't have gas and I push the accelerator, nothing happens. If I see a car driving down the road, it's a pretty safe bet there's gas in that car. Now, maybe it's coasting down the road, but you know, in general, it's a safe bet if I see wheels turning as a car just goes down the road, I know there's gas in tank. So what is one of the best evidences that there's faith in someone's life is I see this kind of love coming out of them. Because where there is gasoline wheels turn. Where there is faith, love comes out. It's how it works. Okay? And again, this love is a family love. I need to emphasize that. This is a sibling love. Why is it that kind of love? Because in the gospel, Jesus did more, not less than, more than reconcile us to the Father. He did that. He paid for our sins and turned away God's anger from us by taking our penalty on the cross. And through the gospel, God adopts us into his family so that now we have a father. Praise the Lord. We have a father who loves us and delights in us. But we have more than that. We also have brothers and sisters in God's family because the cross didn't just make us forgiven. It made us family. And when we are in this family by faith, one of the ways that faith shows itself is through love for our brothers and sisters. This combination of faith in Jesus and love for his people is what usually caused the Apostle Paul to thank God for the churches that he writes to. Have you ever noticed this? I'm just going to give you a couple examples here. Why did Paul thank God for churches? Ephesians 1.15 Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Colossians one. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. 2 Thessalonians. Because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. It's all over Paul's writing. He constantly is linking these that are acts of faith and our deeds of love. Or deeds of love and acts of faith. We sung about a little bit ago. They're always going together. Where there is faith in Christ, there is love for his people. And the love is a brotherly love For your fellow Christians, for your fellow church members. This is what we're called to. Again, I just want to say, remember, this isn't love because we think they're lovable. We say we get that when it comes to our our physical families. But when it comes to our church family, sometimes we're like, Are you sure? It's not because they're deserving of our love. We love them simply because they're our family. Now notice this family love was present in this place, right? You see that in verse one? He says, Let it continue. He's not saying start something that's not there. He says, there's something there, continue it. Because why would he say that? Well, because it's, it's under threat. There's, there's reasons why it may not continue. And it may not continue. It may be threatened right when they need it at most. Remember, throughout this letter, we've seen this church is facing trials. It's facing persecutions. They're facing temptations to turn away from Jesus, And run after other things. there's, There's a lot of pressures on this church. So more than ever, they need the love of their church family to keep running the race. But we know very well, when tensions are high, when there's a lot of strain and stress and pressure, that's when love is threatened. So, the author tells them, continue in brotherly love. Friends, this is a word we need because right now, the body of Christ, our love for one another is being threatened. I'm not talking just here at Chapelwood. There are so many churches that I know, not just in the news, but some that I know personally that are being torn apart. And I don't say that lightly, but torn apart over disagreements about politics about COVID, about masks, about vaccinations, about race, about justice, about any number of things. There is a lot of, people are exhausted after a year and a half of having our lives flipped around by a pandemic. We all feel that. Even if you don't think you do, it's impacted all of us. And so now there's all these conditions, the stress and strain and pressure that we all face in different ways. And what it does is it puts Our love to the test. But when life gets hard, and when everyone else around us is dividing and turning on each other, that's when we let brotherly love continue. That's when our love rises to the occasion, because that's when we need it the most, and that's when the world will notice it the most. Right? We all know Jesus said, By this they will know you're my disciples, by the love you have for one another. And he doesn't have in mind primarily the church picnic where everybody's laughing and enjoying good food and having fun. He means the love that you have for one another when there are strongly divergent views on things. When you get people in the same room who have very strong opinions and perspectives and experiences on different sides of issues, it gets the world's attention when you get those people in the room and yet they love one another. They say, why in the world do you do that? Well, because of Jesus Because what unites us is stronger than what divides us. That's what he's telling them. Let brotherly love continue. One person summed up family love this way. I thought this was really helpful. He said, family will stand behind you at your best, stand next to you at your worst, and stand in front of you at your most vulnerable. Say that again so you picture it. Family will stand behind you at your best, supporting you. Stand next to you at your worst, they're right there with you. And stand in front of you to protect you when you're at your most vulnerable. That's how we're called to love. That's how we should be loving one another. Here's a great diagnostic question for you. This week, the men actually, we studied uh, 1 Corinthians 13 as part of our Wednesday Bible study. This is the greatest chapter in the Bible about this kind of love. We went into it there, I won't go into it here, but 1 Corinthians 13 is not primarily a marriage text. It's a member text. It's how we love one another. So, what does this kind of love that we're talking about in verse 1 look like? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It does not insist on its own way. It is not arrogant or rude. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The diagnostic for us, I, I mentioned this to the guys Wednesday night. The diagnostic for us is can you put your name in where love is in that paragraph? When you think about your relationship with fellow believers, can you say, I'll use me, Dan is patient. In my relationship with blank, Dan is kind. The way I relate to that person, Dan does not insist on his own way. Dan's not envious. When I'm with that person, I'm not resentful. Can you put your name in there? If not, Where do you need to ask for God's help this week to love more like he does? We all do. Where do you need it? So that's number one. That's the first way the people of Zion live is we let brotherly love continue. Love your siblings. Second way we see the people of Zion live. We love the stranger. Verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So here we're called to show hospitality to strangers. He says, don't neglect it. Now, what does this showing hospitality mean? I think there's a couple layers here. At its core, here's a little fun word trivia for you, I guess. At its core, the word hospitality in the New Testament literally means stranger love. Loving strangers. You might have heard over the last couple years, a word that shows up in a lot of news stories is xenophobic. Right? We say that people are xenophobic if they're afraid of strangers. Because we all know phobia is fear, right? Well, the other part of that word, xeno, that's stranger. So xenophobic is fear of strangers. Well, guess what our word here is? It's not xenophobic, it's phyloxenius. Meaning not fear of strangers, but love of strangers. Love of strangers. Now, why is, why is this kind of love so important? Well, it was important in this time because back then, you got to remember, there were no holiday inns, there were no motel sixes, there were no places that as Christians traveled city to city, particularly the teachers and people planning the churches and the missionaries, they couldn't bank on, when I get there, there's going to be a safe, clean place for me to stay. So as Christians, as you travel city to city, you would rely on the hospitality of other Christians, that you would find the Christians and they would open up their homes to you. You see an example of this in 3 John. Listen to how John commends the church he's writing to. He says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. So John's saying, hey, this is like me talking to a pastor friend in Nebraska saying, hey, Tell your church, it is amazing to see their love and the way they cared for some of our people who were passing through and they took care of them. Even though they didn't know who they were, But they, they brought them in, they supplied their needs and they cared for them. That's what's happening here. He commends them for loving these brothers even though they're strangers. They showed stranger love. This idea of loving people you don't know is so important in the New Testament that in 1 Timothy, we see it's one of the requirements for elders it says they must be hospitable. It says the same thing in Titus 1. So if you want a church leader, one of the things you've got to be is you've got to love strangers. And it's a requirement for which widows the church will financially support. She must have shown hospitality. So this is, this is a big deal in the New Testament. saying like this is something that we look for in believers. Now, I said there's a couple layers because while the idea of hospitality is first targeted at strangers, people that we don't know, it also includes opening up our lives and our homes to fellow believers that you do know. Peter instructs the church in 1 Peter 4.9, he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, they knew each other, but notice there that he has to add without grumbling. I think that's just an interesting thing. When you start letting the people you know into your home, you start to grumble about it. So he says, don't do that. Show hospitality to one another. The point of looking at these texts is that as the people of Zion, we are to live in such a way that we welcome people into our homes and into our lives. One person said, the New Testament assumes that if we have Jesus in our hearts, we'll have people in our homes. I think that's true. I think that's right. And I think just because we don't have the same conditions now, yes, we have hotels, there is, it has not lessened the need and the call for hospitality in our culture. We live such a segregated, isolated way in our society today that when you start welcoming people in, it floors people. They're saying, like, I don't know you that well, and you would invite me for lunch, for dinner, for coffee? And the New Testament says that this is a call for all of us now, hospitality, you need to hear this. is not about having the largest home or being able to offer the best food. It's about welcoming people in and sharing whatever you do have. It's not about lamenting like, oh, I wish we had more space. or I wish we had nicer chairs for you to sit on. or I wish we had a, uh, I, I actually didn't go to the grocery store this week, so I'm sorry I don't have much. It's just about saying, hey, come on in and whatever I have, it's yours as well. Let's share it together. And we can all do this. That's the thing is, Hospitality is not limited by age or stage or circumstance. It's something that you can do if you're young. It's something you can do if you're old. It's something that single guys can do, believe it or not. And it's something that moms with young kids can do. You can do it if you have a studio apartment or if you have a very large house. The goal is not to impress, but to share. And one of the things I want to encourage you in is that I see many of you doing this and it, it thrills me. I have loved how God has been growing our churchness over the last year. I hear more and more stories of you welcoming each other into your homes and it just it brings a smile to my face because you guys are doing this and that's a sign of health. So my call is to say like, let's keep doing it and let's do it all the more. And If, if you haven't done it, let's learn from and with one another in this because we've got some pretty amazing people in this church. And if you have them in your home, you should really get to know them. I think you will be blessed. Let me give you two applications here. I want you to think about who is someone, I mean, it could be an individual, a couple, family with kids, whoever it is, who's someone in the church that you could have over for dinner, dessert, just coffee, something in the next month. you got a whole month, Preferably somebody you don't know that well. Who's one someone you could have over in the next month? Second application. Because hospitality isn't only about our home. It's about loving the stranger, right? So one challenge I'd love to make us as a congregation is that when we welcome visitors to our church, how amazing would it be if whenever there was a visitor, no visitor ever left Chapelwood without being invited to lunch. Could be at your home, could be out to a restaurant. That's, that's not the point. And they might say, no, that's not the point. The point is, what if, what, what if we were known, if word got out, and what people experience is that every stranger that walks in our door is loved and welcomed and asked to share a meal. How amazing would that be? Let's make that our goal. So, even though there are tons of personality reasons, you know, I, I'm an introvert. There's tons of schedule reasons, ah, I'm pretty busy. Tons of comfort reasons, ah, that's pretty inconvenient. Tons of reasons not to do it. Let's not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. As people of Zion, let's love the stranger. Now, I'm going to disappoint you here. I'm not going to talk a whole lot about the angels part because. His only point there is he's probably referencing Abraham and Lot in the Old Testament saying, hey, they they were just welcoming in strangers and it turned out to be angels. He's saying, he's not guaranteeing that if you invite someone you don't know in your home, it's going to turn out to be an angel. It might work out quite the opposite. Okay, this is not a guarantee. He's just simply saying, there might be more in it than you think. Okay? All right. third way we live as the people of Zion. We love the sufferers. Verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Now remember, these prisoners were their fellow church members. These weren't just random criminals. They weren't in prison because they committed some horrible crime. They were in prison because they were followers of Jesus. They were suffering for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And the call here is to remember them, he says. Now, remember doesn't only mean don't forget them. Like, oh yeah, I I remember. I know right where they are because they're in prison. It doesn't mean that. It means to remember them is to show compassion on them, to take action. They are to do what Jesus told us in Matthew 7. He says, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. In other words, remember them as though you were in prison with them. Have compassion on those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Treat them the way you hope you would be treated if you were suffering and mistreated. And while Paul speaks this, I'm sorry, when the author of Hebrews, who I don't think is Paul, speaks specifically to those who are being persecuted, I think the principle applies more broadly here. I think you can extend it out to any kind of suffering experienced by our brothers and sisters. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12 if one member suffers all suffer together. I think we read that and I don't know that we many of us have experienced that. That we we don't there's not a tight enough oneness that when one of us suffers man I feel it. I feel it. But the New Testament is clear we are part of one another. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. And we suffer with those who suffer. We enter into their suffering and we love them in the midst of it. And Again, just like hospitality, let me be clear. This doesn't always have to be much. Sometimes it might. But it could be as simple as asking yourself, man, if I were going through what they're going through, what would I want somebody to do for me? It could be maybe visiting a shut-in. Nothing elaborate, just stopping in to say hi, spending a few minutes talking, catching up. Maybe it's sending an encouraging text. You know somebody had something going on in their life and you just want to say, hey, thinking about you today, praying for you. Maybe it's taking a meal to someone that you know is having a hard week. A whole host of things you could do. The point is that part of our being a family is that we take care of each other when suffering comes. And especially if one of us suffers because of the name of Christ. We don't distance ourselves to keep ourselves safe. If somebody's catching flack for being a Christian, we don't kind of slink back and keep a distance lest we be linked with them. We press in and we move toward them in love because we also are in the body. So love your siblings, love the stranger, and love the sufferers. And if you want to see how important these things are in the life of a citizen of Zion... Listen to how Jesus, the King of Zion, brings these three together in Matthew 25. Listen for each of these. Loving your siblings, loving the stranger, and loving the sufferers. After Jesus describes how he's coming back in glory and will sit on his throne to separate those who are his people, the sheep, from those who are not, the goats, he says this, Then the King will say to those on his right, to the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. In other words, when we love one another in these ways, we're not just loving them. We're loving Jesus. So if you want to show your love for Jesus this week, love a sibling in the faith, love a stranger, love a sufferer. That's how the people of Zion live on earth. Okay, that brings us to our last two. Now, the last two are a little bit different than the first three, but they still have to do with who and what we love. They deal with how we as Christians view two of the most basic parts of life in this world, sex and money. And what we see is that as followers of Jesus, we are called to have a radically different perspective on both of these than the world around us. So the fourth way people of Zion live is we love your spouse. Look at verse four. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Okay, now that word for honor there, is often used to describe precious uh, gems and stones, things like diamonds and gold, things that are really, really valuable. It's often translated precious. And that's exactly how the author is saying we are to view marriage and sexual intimacy in it, as something precious. See, the world sees it very differently. The world sees sex as something cheap and light. It's not that valuable. It's easy to find, easy to throw away. It doesn't have much value. But as God's people, we see it differently. We see it as precious. We are called to see marriage and the intimacy that comes with it as a treasure to be cherished and prized and protected at all costs. As Christians, we are not ashamed of sex or embarrassed by it. That's when you have a wrong view that there's shame and guilt that should come with it. We're not ashamed of it. Our God created it. But he also created it for a very specific relationship. It only belongs in the marriage of one man and one woman joined by a covenant. Because it's a covenant blessing of that relationship not to be shared with anyone who's not a part of that covenant. Why? Because it reflects the joyful intimacy and giving of oneself that is reflected in God's covenant with his people. This is why all throughout the Bible, when people give themselves to other gods, what does God call it? Adultery. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that the picture of marriage refers to Christ in a church. It's because there is an intimacy that is meant to be enjoyed in our covenant relationship with God. And we are not to share that intimacy with anyone else. And in the same way, there is an intimacy meant to be shared only in a marriage covenant. And sharing it with anyone else outside of that covenant is sexual immorality or adultery. And the writer tells us here that this ought not be so for the people of God. We are to see marriage as precious and to keep the marriage bed undefiled. There is to be no sexual immorality or adultery. And sexual immorality, to be clear, refers to any sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. Sometimes in a church we've, done a, we've talked a lot the last decade or so about the evils of homosexuality. And we have given a pass to other sexual sins. And it ought not be so. The Bible says any sexual immorality we are to flee and should not even be mentioned among God's people. And notice why we take sexual sin so seriously. What does it say? For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Friends, we don't take sex lightly because God doesn't take sex lightly. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. In other words, don't let people tell you otherwise. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. They won't get the inheritance in Zion. That's what our eyes are fixed on. That's what we've been celebrating for weeks. And he says in no uncertain terms, in multiple places in the New Testament, if you engage and indulge in sexual immorality or adultery, that is not yours we need to take it seriously but i have good news there may be some of you here who hear that and it cuts it cuts deep because that's you you know that that is in your past or maybe it's in your present and to hear that those who are sexually immoral or adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God leaves you undone. Here's where the gospel shines brightly. Because you know what Paul says right after that? After he announces to the church in Corinth and says, be clear, don't let anybody fool you and say, it's not a big deal. Everybody does it. You'll still get to go to heaven. He says, don't let them lie to you. If you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's what he says. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. There is no sin too big for our Savior. So while he, like you need to see it, if the cross should explode in size in your mind when you hear how seriously God takes this and says, if you do this, you don't come. Then he says, but if you come to Jesus wash you friends that should just stun us that's the hope we have so if you're here and you've not held marriage in honor if you have not treated it as the precious gem that it is and you've engaged in sexual immorality it does not have to be the last word in your life god will judge your sin but if you repent and turn to jesus your judgment's been taken by him And God will wash you and make you clean and fit to inherit that kingdom. That brings us to the final way we see the people of Zion live. They love their siblings. They love the stranger. They love the suffering. They love their spouse. Now we see they don't love stuff. Verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So, as people of Zion here, he calls us, he says, We're to be content with what we have. We're not to love money or stuff and spend our lives trying to get more and more and better and better. The world tells us that all the time. That's why this is so out of step. Like, I honestly think we all know that we are out of step with the world in terms of our sexual ethics. This may be even more out of step with the world in terms of how we view possessions. He says the world tells us every single commercial is targeted at this. Like, there would be no commercials if there wasn't discontent. The whole premise is you don't have something you should have, something you would want. Let me tell you about it. Suddenly you find yourself... Think, oh, my car is pretty old. That car looks nice. Or I wish I had one of those. And oh, they've got that? This is what we're being bombarded with. And here he says, this is not how we think. We don't think I need more and more and better and better because Jesus tells us in Luke 12, one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. And sometimes I think we give ourselves a pass on commands like this. We read this and we think, I'm glad those rich people here are hearing this. Those people that got a lot of stuff, they need to hear this. This one doesn't apply to me because <laughs> I don't have too much. If you saw my bank account and like what we have at home, you'd say, you get, you get a pass. But friends, the truth is, love of money and lack of contentment with what we have is just as much a problem if we're broke as it is as if we're wealthy. It's not about how much you have. It's about whether you're satisfied with what you have. And as people who belong to Jesus, it says we are to be content. And then it tells us why. It doesn't just say, be content. Why can I be content? Because we have God and he will never leave us or forsake us. Here's a secret. The solution to feeling discontent. So if you say, yeah, I I feel that discontent. The solution to feeling discontent is not getting more. I've heard people use the phrase that I, I I I loathe even saying it out loud. Retail therapy, where you go buy stuff to make yourself feel better. I hate that phrase. The secret, the solution to feeling discontent is not getting more. It's realizing that in Christ, you have all that you need. Like you see Jesus and you realize, what more could I want? And if you feel like there's discontent, it's because you haven't seen enough of him. You need to see because there is nothing lacking in him. Friends, we have an inheritance coming our way that is beyond our wildest imaginations. We are the people of Zion. That's why I keep using that phrase. It's to remind us what we've come to and what we're headed to. That's where our treasure is. Why would we spend our lives trying to heap up stuff here? Earthly treasure won't last, but we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that's kept in heaven for us. So because of that, we are content with whatever God gives me here. 1 Timothy 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. In other words, do you you hear Hebrews' language in this warning? He says, people that want, if, if your life is built around, I need to get more. I need to have, if we could just upgrade our home. Get out of this home and into the next, next caliber. I'm not talking a mansion. This, whatever the next one is. Get a next better car. Get a next better phone. Get a next better thing. If, if your life is driven by that, this love of money, he says, when you do that, when you have this desire, it's a snare. We talked about snares in Hebrews 12, didn't we? That they make it really hard to run the race. They start to tangle you and you're you're getting all twisted up because your eyes are no longer fixed on Jesus. But how do I get that? And he says, when you have this, this love of money, this craving, that's how some have wandered away from the faith. Because I'm not looking at Jesus anymore saying, I've got what I want. I've got what I need. Instead I say, oh, what's over there? And I leave the path. And we don't make it. Instead of arriving at Zion... People that love stuff plunge into destruction. We want to make it home, so we learn to be content. How can we be content? We remember the Lord is our helper. He is my helper. I don't need to fear. I don't need to fear that I won't have enough or I'll miss out on that. I don't need to fear because He's my helper. And I can be content that right now He's giving me exactly what I need. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. So we rest content. And what he has for us. So here's how we'll close. Instead of loving stuff. Let's use our stuff. To love people. We love our siblings. We love the stranger. We love the suffering. And we love our spouse. But we keep our hearts free from the love of money. We take all the blessings that God gives us. And we leverage them. So that the peoples might praise him. And so that the nations might be glad in Jesus. That's how the people of Zion live here on earth. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your rescuing work in our hearts. God, none of us lives this way naturally. I know I I didn't and I wouldn't. God, none of us is naturally inclined to love other people well. We're not inclined to open up our lives and our homes to anyone, let alone people we don't know. Lord, none of us is naturally inclined to want to join with people suffering. We would rather stay out of it, just let them deal with their mess. i got enough on my own plate. Lord, all of us are naturally inclined to the world's view of of sex and money. So we know that the things we read here are not... (laughs) simple steps to how to be a better person. These are impossible things apart from your redeeming work. So we thank you that you've done that and so many. And God, if there are people here who have not tasted that, would you open their eyes this morning? Would you help them see that there is a better life? That they don't need to buy the bill of goods that this world is selling them. That the promises are empty. But you make promises that are all fulfilled in Jesus. And they're better promises. So I pray that you would grant life to those who don't have it. And I pray for those of us who have come to Zion, you would help us live this way. Oh Lord, would you help us love the way you love? And would you help us to use our stuff and our lives in a way that serves one another and shows the world that Jesus is better than any possessions so that they might find their joy in you. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Would you stand and sing one last song, celebrating that and asking God to make it so.
0: You have called that we
1: stick around for a few minutes afterwards for a quick member meeting. Um, Until then, church, man, let's love one another. I'm I'm excited to love you better and to grow in this with you. So until then, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I love you, church. Have a great week.